class matters. This morning we're going to be talking about class, and I've asked two lay leaders, Eileen Sullivan and Rashid Sheikh, to speak from their experience as I will speak from mine. Eileen. Good morning. With one exception, my great-grandparents were immigrants or the children of immigrants. My family included Irish, Italian, and German Catholics with one rogue Scottish Protestant. The men in my fa father's family got factory jobs that transitioned into stable working-class union jobs. My grandfather and his brothers were able to buy homes after returning from serving at World War II. My mother's family, on the other hand, worked primarily as servants housekeepers, laundry, gardening, and driving. Home ownership is still rare in my mother's family. My parents were teenagers when they got married, and my mother was five months pregnant with me. By the age of 20, my mother had three children, no high school diploma, and a young husband who had a lot of trouble keeping a job. For the first five years of my life, we moved frequently. My parents don't like to talk about those years, but what I've put together is we lived in five years in three different apartments with my grandparents who had one extra room in the house for the five of us, with my mother's brother and his family of four children, and spent a few weeks living out of a station wagon. Things got better when I started kindergarten because my father got a stable job as a truck driver and a Teamsters union card. My mother, in addition to taking care of her own family, cared for other people's children after school, and cleaned houses. Once my youngest sister was in middle school, she started working as a cashier in retail stores. My parents lived paycheck to paycheck, and money was always a struggle. Most of our clothes came from thrift stores, hand-me-downs from older cousins, and my mother's sewing machine. I only remember two short vacations, and there was rarely money for camps, so I dreaded the first day of school when we were asked, to describe to everybody what do we do over the summer. I am to this day one of only two people on either side of my family to go to college right after high school and earn a degree. I paid with my education at a state university with financial aid and working on average for part-time jobs. No one in my family contributed money or co-signed a loan. It was beyond their conception that they would even do so. I did not go abroad when I was in college to study, and I did not go to Florida on spring break. I literally worked every moment I could. I never thought of college as a time to dive into studies. I was focused on the end result, getting a degree and living a life different than my family. On my list of things I hope to do in retirement is to take a class for the simple joy of learning. Even though today I have a bachelor's and two master's degrees, I have never done that. Today, I live a middle-class life. I have a senior management job in state government. I make enough money to live comfortably, go on vacations, give to charity, and save responsibly. None of my sisters or cousins could make that statement. Before I came to First Parish, I had done a lot of work on class issues and racism, along with a good dose of therapy. UU helped me take that work, go deeper, and really align it with my values. I tackled what it meant to operate from a place of scarcity and how to move to a place of being grateful for what I have. I live in two different worlds. 
My family's world is a painful place to be at times. When my younger sister Liz smiles, and I see she is missing two teeth because she has never had dental insurance as an adult, I'm reminded how unfair life can be. My family is certainly mystified at times by my current life. When I showed up at First Parish in 1999, there were quite a few times I felt pretty out of place. There was such a focus on Harvard across the street, and it seemed that most people had lived very different lives than mine. Private colleges, time spent in Europe, fun vacations growing up, parents who were educated professionals. One of the things I find hardest is when people who were raised middle class or upper middle class assume everyone has the same experience. I remember an anti-racism discussion in which someone shared remembering how upset her mother was when Martin Luther King was assassinated. Comments followed in which several people told the same story. Liberal, educated parents committed to civil rights who were deeply distressed by Dr. King's assassination. No one in my family cried when Martin Luther King was assassinated. My grandfather and his siblings were horrified when their neighborhood changed and African Americans started to move in. And unlike the parents or grandparents of some people here, they could not afford to move to the suburbs. I can remember watching All in the Family as a child, and when Archie said something racist or sexist that was supposed to be seen as ridiculous by the viewers, my father would say, you know, he's right. I'm not suggesting that working class people are more racist than the middle class, but rather the need to edit themselves and be polite is not the same. My experience has been that sharing some of my family's stories with people raised middle class makes people uncomfortable. And so I remain silent because people's reactions might make me uncomfortable and frankly, just take too much energy sometimes to have the conversation. Middle class people tend to be very polite I've learned to be very polite to fit in. If during the racism discussion, I had actually shared that no one in my family cried when Martin Luther King died, I have no idea how people in the room would have reacted. I didn't share my story in part because I was uncomfortable after listening to so many similar stories. But I've come to realize we can't actually impact classism or racism unless we are willing to have conversations that are uncomfortable. Some diversity is obvious, and some can be invisible, unless it is shared and we create a space where people feel safe and invited to share. Please don't make assumptions that we are all the same. Whether it's family history or current financial circumstances, there is class diversity that is not visible without getting to know each other. I look forward to more conversations and hope some of them do make us uncomfortable. Thank you. I must have been 11 or 12 when I first started thinking about class. I asked my mom, who's here this morning, I asked her, what class are we? Middle class? Upper middle class? My mother stiffened and replied, we are upper class. <laughs> class, I was discovering, is not just about money. It's a state of mind. I knew we weren't rich. Rich people had color TVs. 
Ours was black and white. Rich people vacationed in Europe. We vacationed in Connecticut and Ontario. Rich people lived up the hill in our town. We lived at the bottom of the hill, although right next to it. <laughs> I didn't want to be upper class. I wanted to be normal, normal like middle, I guess. I wanted to be friends with everybody. But I knew we were supposed to be different from other people. Usually when my mom used the word common, she used it the way most people do, to mean frequent or typical. But every now and then she used it to mean coarse or vulgar. That kind of common, I learned, wasn't very nice. I learned it was important who our ancestors were. One of them came over on the Mayflower. Another was a United States senator. Still another was a prosperous merchant. My mother, barred by gender from admission to Yale, liked to say that our male ancestors had attended Yale in an unbroken line back to one who went to Harvard because Yale hadn't been founded yet. <laughs> my mom went to Mount Holyoke. I heard less about my father's paternal grandfather, a working-class English immigrant who toiled for Boston Electric. His son, my grandfather, escaped his class by snagging an appointment to the Naval Academy and marrying a congressman's daughter. I heard nothing at all until I was an adult about the African-Americans held as slaves by both my northern and southern ancestors. Recalling the Great Depression, my mom said without irony she knew her family was poor because they had to dismiss the live-in maid. She quoted her father calling Franklin Roosevelt a traitor to his class. My mom voted straight Republican until 1964 when Barry Goldwater was too much for her. By 1972, she was canvassing for George McGovern. Our family, when I was a child, belonged to a country club with tennis courts, swimming pool, and a dining room where we ate maybe once a month. Years later, I discovered the club excluded Jews and people of color, a detail that eluded my attention as a child. Even at the country club, I had the impression that we tennis players were a better sort than the golfers. <laughs> I attended public school until fifth grade, then a private day school. At 13, I left for boarding school, like my father and grandfather. My parents paid my way through college and law school, including living expenses. While many of my classmates indentured themselves to corporate law firms to pay off student loans, I was free to do public interest law. When folk music beckoned, I knew I could always fall back on my law degree. When called to ministry, I paid my tuition at Harvard Divinity School by selling a painting by my great uncle, a renowned artist. My upbringing taught me the world was my oyster. I could do anything I set my mind to. If I felt vaguely, even unconsciously, superior to people with less education or refinement, and thus alienated from them, it seemed a small price to pay. Rashid. Good morning. <coughs> That's not a good start. Good morning again. Um, 
Jump, he pleaded. Jump, he commanded. It will be fun. After some more cajoling, I finally jumped. The acceleration of that moment is one of my fondest memories. I was 23 at that time. The place was the Pasadena Country Club, and he was my swimming teacher. Until a couple of weeks before my jump, this first jump, I had never been in a pool. I had just come to the United States from Bombay, India. I was recuperating from heart surgery, and I was staying with a very, very kind and generous friend. She encouraged me to take swimming lessons. I was ready, and soon myself, and soon found myself at the Pasadena Country Club. Nice place, actually. Should go sometime. A couple of weeks after I had started my lessons, I ran into, uh, there was an architect who was visiting my friend Sue. He said very proudly, when he heard about my swimming lessons at the country club, that, oh, Sue, you know, they just accepted me into the country club as a member. He was very proud. His face was just glowing. And then he said, you know, my dad, my dad used to work there as a janitor. And that is, my dad worked there as a janitor after he came out of the internment, club, internment camp. He was a Japanese-American man. And it suddenly dawned on me, oh, wow. So a servant boy will be hobnobbing with the aristocrats of Pasadena. Yes, I thought, this is the American dream. This is how things, things work in this country. How wrong was I? Very wrong. But that jump in the pool brought a flashback from a long time ago. As a very young boy, we would occasionally go to the beach in Bombay. One of the main attractions for going to the beach was the food and the snacks that were sold there. I loved the food, but I was always, I was always mesmerized by a distant sight. There in the, in, in, in the distance, high above the ground, higher than the surrounding buildings and taller than the trees, was a platform. It was a diving board. Every once in a while, someone would climb up to the top and dive. I could not see the pool, but I could see them somersault in the air. Oh, how much fun that must be, I always thought. But I knew too well that the pool belonged to the rich of Bombay, and there were was, was no pools in Bombay for the likes of me. Some years later, I, it turns out, I learned that I could not have gone to that pool even if I was the richest kid in the world for one very simple reason. I was a Muslim, and Muslims were not allowed at the pool. Categorically, not allowed. So at an early life, I learned about the influence of both class and religion or caste or any other attribute that one inherited. I learned a little other lessons too, and here's one. So I, I grew up as a Muslim. Muslims make about 12.5% of India's population, a minority group. In terms of absolute numbers, that is about 150 million people one of the largest Muslim populations in the world. In any event, uh, Eid is a major Muslim holiday. We always got new clothes uh, for Eid. That was very exciting for us kids. And before Eid, I would always tack along with my sister or my mother to go clothes shopping. After shopping, we would, we would invariably be running late, so we had to hire a cab to get home. That was a rarity itself, because we didn't have a lot of money. So, but I did not like looking for a cab and haggling with the drivers because at that time most of the cabbies were Hindus and if you try to flag them down, 
they will not stop for a Muslim family. So we looked for cabbies that were, that were uh, waiting on the street, waiting for a fare, but they would not go to a Muslim neighborhood. So over time, we learned how to trick the cabbies. So we would tell them to take us to a neighboring community that was perceived as being more desirable, and then we would either walk all the rest of the way home, or if the cabbies seemed nice, we would cajole them to, oh, to go, go a little further, yeah, make a little right, a little left, and little by little, if we were lucky, he would drop us by ho at home. So the neighborhood also matters, I learned. Growing up, I developed a perspective that in life, your opportunities and challenge, challenges form in a certain context. That context is your social class, as well as the factors you simply inherited. Those factors may be your religion, maybe your caste, or the color of your skin. So how does all of this inform my experience as a UU? All religions ask their followers to help the poor, help those who have less than you. Service, generosity, selfless giving are positive attributes, whether you're a Christian, a Jew, or a Muslim, or a Hindu, or a Buddhist. You must have heard about the five pillars of Islam. These are mandatory on every Muslim, and one of them is zakat. Zakat is the giving of alms, charitable giving. About 2.5% of your accumulated wealth, not your income, your accumulated wealth every year. For us, you use the principles and the purposes of our faith call us not only to affirm, but also to promote. To promote, I think, I th I think of that as to fight for the inherent worth and dignity of every person and justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. Similarly, the second source upon which our principles are based draws inspiration from the words and deeds of prophetic women and men. And what are those words? Those words challenge us to confront the powers and structures of evil with justice, with compassion, and with the transforming power of love. How inspiring are these words? How profound their appeal? And how enlightening is their, their wisdom? I'm grateful to Fred for, for starting a conversation about class. We don't talk about class very often, as Eileen said. As a society, we don't. We, we make believe that we are, we are a meritocracy. And we, have a, we are a classless society. The truth is, of course, anything but. Allow me to quote from a recent and a very, very uh, relevant uh, report from the UUA. Quote, more or less, uh, conversations about class are uncomfortable. Class is deeply personal. Class affects us as individual and as congregations and as society, indeed. A little later, this same document says, class plays itself out in, in our congregational life in real time. If we can understand the true impact of class at all levels, we may get a clearer image of who we are, understand whether we are truly living our principles and core values, and determine how our actions might more closely reflect our values. So having just begun this conversation about class, I hope that we can continue, continue this in the future. Thank you. According to working class feminist Tilly Olson, 
The only thing wrong with privilege is that most people don't have it. I'd add another thing wrong with privilege. A lot of us who have it don't think there's much wrong with it. What's wrong is not the people who have it or don't have it. I no more chose my class than Eileen or Rashid chose theirs. The wrong is an economic and social system that imposes what Jonathan Kozal calls savage inequalities. The Declaration of Independence says we're created equal. But once you pass through that birth canal, baby, you're on your own. Theoretically, the state will step in to keep you from being abused or neglected, provided the state hires enough social workers for the job. And it will try to educate you up to a point. But these ragged safety nets are no match for the power of class to determine destiny. American economic mobility, which rose briefly after World War II, has declined since the 1970s. And today is lower than in historical aristocracies like England or France. Being born in the elite in the United States gives you a constellation of privileges that very few people in the world have ever experienced, says economist David Levine. Not the David Levine who co-chairs our worship associates. A different David Levine. He continues, being born poor in the United States gives you disadvantages unlike anything in Western Europe and Japan and Canada. As Unitarian Universalists, we covenant to affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person and justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. Since 1961, the Unitarian Universalist Association has passed more than two dozen resolutions addressing economic justice issues like affordable housing, workers' rights, and tax reform. This congregation has sponsored service projects like our Tuesday Meals Program, Payne Senior Services, and now Y2Y Harvard Square, which will provide shelter to homeless young adults in our basement. We are moving toward membership in the Greater Boston Interfaith Organization, which will partner us with a broad range of religious communities to advocate for policies of justice and compassion. But we can and should do more to break down barriers of class in our society, in our church, and in our hearts. We should challenge the obscene chasm of wealth separating the richest and poorest Americans. We should fund a church budget that supports lay leader training and general assembly participation rather than restricting these experiences to those able to self-finance. We should subsidize health insurance for all church staff. And we should ask ourselves, each of us, how our own class background may affect our ability truly to welcome and befriend people with different backgrounds. When we make assumptions about education, discretionary income, access to health care, or even politics, are we subtly or not so subtly excluding people from the circle of community? Listening to Eileen express her fear of being asked how she spent her summer reminds me of why we don't have a water communion here at First Parish at our homecoming the first Sunday after Labor Day. Many of you may know that it's uh, 
a frequent practice in Unitarian Universalist congregations to invite people at the end of the summer to bring a little container of water from some place they've been that summer and to share with the congregation where that place was. And after a few of such water communions where some people brought water from Europe and some from uh, Canada and some from the Western National Parks and others either didn't participate or brought water from their tap in Ayr or Chelsea. And that was the closest we ever came to addressing the economic divides in the congregation. I decided I uh, did not want to do water communion if it had to be done in that way. So we need to learn how to invite and to share the truth of our lives without judgment and without shame. The stories of class that Eileen, Rashid, and I shared with you this morning barely scratched the surface of the influence of class on our lives, but they are a beginning. We invite you to continue the conversation with us and with others in your lives. Amen. Ashe. And blessed be.